This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, an area of accuracy in an arrogant world. And the number one show about medical preparedness. Also because it's the only show about <laughs> medical preparedness out there, to my knowledge. It's like cocaine bear. If by cocaine you mean oatmeal, and by bear you mean geezer. <laughs> oatmeal geezer. That's me. That's funny. And who who am me? I well, who are you? Me is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Doctor Bones of the award-winning survival website DoomAndBloom.net. And here is Nurse Amy. My real name is Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And a certified nurse midwife. And nurse practitioner extraordinaire. You didn't say that. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> That's right. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so sharp, she mows the lawn just by rolling around in the yard. <laughs> <laughs> On this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, the unconventional medical wisdom, plus at absolutely no charge, wild claims and opinions by a man who drools on his shoes. Hey, whatever it takes. To get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're going to hear it right here. But first, you got to listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't, if Jack Reacher's your bodyguard and you don't see the harm in a little zombie apocalypse. <laughs> but answer me this, who's going to keep your family safe and healthy when it really hits the fan? And hospitals are out of commission and someone you care about is sick or injured. Well, it ain't me, pal. I'm just a voice on the radio. <clears throat> It's you, old buddy, old pal. You can bet that when it's least expected, you're elected. So get off your duff and learn some stuff. And why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy can tell you where you can find some. Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net, where we will not pack your kits until you order it. So everything is fresh with the best expiration dates possible. Aha. Uh -huh. I didn't know that. No, yeah, actually, I did know that. You did know that. You've <laughs> helped me several million times. <laughs> I want to mention that the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook still ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon, over more than 2,500 reviews, and it's still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked it out yet, you're going to find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral-bound version on the website. Well, you'd have to look pretty far and wide if you wanted to find someone who hasn't been stung by an insect at one point or another. It's not pleasant in any situation, but bees and wasps especially can inflict some real discomfort if you run afoul of them. In a small minority of cases, allergic reactions to the venom that they inject can actually be life-threatening, the condition that we call anaphylaxis. Now, we've talked about it a number of times before on this podcast. Most stinging insects belong to the order Hymenoptera which includes wasps, bees, even fire ants. We'll talk about fire ants some other time. The stinger is a modified egg-laying apparatus, so only females can sting. But as you know, worker bees and worker wasps don't really reproduce, so basically instead they have a stinger. Despite the most commonly known stinging insects living in hives and colonies, most actually, believe it or not, live solitary lives or relatively peaceful if you leave them undisturbed. More social ones, though, like hornets and yellow jackets and honeybees, well, they vigorously defend the nest. And some will register their annoyance in no uncertain terms if you interfere with their daily activities. Now let's talk about the difference between regular honeybees and Africanized bees. 
The European honeybee, which is essentially the type of bee that we have here in general, is important for crop pollination and honey production. The Africanized, or killer bee, believe it or not, is a hybrid of the East African lowland honeybee crossed with various honeybee species or subspecies in Europe. The two types of bees look about the same, and their behavior is similar in many respects, and neither will probably sting when they're just gathering nectar and pollen, but many will sting in defense if you provoke them. The difference is, is that the Africanized honeybees are less predictable and much more defensive than European honeybees. They defend a wider area around their nests, respond quickly and in greater numbers than their European counterpart. They're also much more persistent in their defense. They might chase intruders for hundreds of yards. They do not give up. Now, while we're differentiating stuff, let's differentiate the difference between wasps and hornets. Although a hornet's a type of wasp, there are differences. Wasps are very slender in their waist area as opposed to hornets, which are built thicker and rounder in the midsection. Hornets also tend to be larger in general. They have wider heads. In addition, the common wasps have only one set of wings, while hornets have two. From a behavior standpoint, hornets are more aggressive, usually inflict more painful stings. In rare cases, the neurotoxin in some hornet stings can be pretty deadly. I decided to talk about bee and wasp stings now because they're most commonly found during summer and early fall when they're most active and hives and nests are most populated. Another factor that contributes to the number of stings is that people spend more time outside during summer and early fall. The stinging incidents that we see most often occur when nests are disturbed. Now, if you see several wasps or bees flying back and forth from a certain area, that's a sign that you probably should avoid it. What attracts a bee or wasp to sting? Well, bees and wasps can be attracted to certain odors drawn to flowers and fruit trees, of course, but also the smell, believe it or not, of perfumes and scented soaps. You might want to avoid wearing these near hive, nest, or other bee and wasp-rich environments. Uh, strangely, they also seem to like the smell of rotting garbage. Yeesh. Now, people wearing short sleeves, short pants, or going barefoot expose more skin than can possibly be sites for stings. So if you're going into an area where there is a lot of these guys, you may want to wear long pants and you may want to wear long sleeves. Also, wearing brightly colored clothing attracts their attention, so you may want to stay away from those flowered Hawaiian shirts, possibly. What does a sting look like, and what symptoms does it cause? Well, a sting usually appears as a red raised welt with a puncture hole in the middle. You can expect a, an instant sharp burning pain at the site of the sting. Hives or welts may develop peak signs maybe at about 48 hours, can last up to a week, and as time passes, the area may swell and look red and bruised. Now, bee stings look similar to wasp stings, but they leave a barbed stinger in the wound. This proves fatal to the bee as it leaves some of its organs with the stinger as it pulls away. Wasps, however, have a smooth stinger that doesn't stay in the wound, making it possible for an individual wasp to sting multiple times in a short period of time. That is bad news. Pain from a sting can last a couple hours, but the swelling and redness can last for a week. Uh, wasp stings, they tend to be more painful than bee stings. The pain from an insect sting is calculated using something called the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. This scale ranges from 1 to 4, with 4 being the most painful. Most bees fall around level 1 to 2, while wasps are commonly level 3, and some species of wasps actually level 4, so they can be pretty darn painful. Now let's talk about the kinds of really bad allergic reactions you might see with these stings. Severe reactions I mentioned before are called anaphylaxis, and they can cause life-threatening symptoms such as 
severe pain, swelling in the throat, hives and itching in areas that are far away from the sting site can make you have a rapid heartbeat. You may feel nauseous. You may vomit, actually. Your blood pressure may drop. You may faint. You may have difficulty breathing. It could be really serious stuff. Occasionally, sting sites may become infected. So the redness and discoloration in the area of an infected sting looks different from a regular sting because the redness and discoloration spreads over time. Instead of going away, the swelling worsens. The area becomes warm and painful to the touch. And in some cases, you may actually develop a collection of pus, and that is called an abscess, and that actually may drain from the wound, could be foul-smelling, really bad stuff. Now, to treat a bee and wasp sting, you have to act quickly. So rapid action is going to speed recovery from a sting. If the stinger is still in the wound, you want to remove it immediately with a fingernail or even by scraping it out away with a credit card. The faster you remove it, the faster symptoms will resolve, especially in bee stings because sacs of venom that are attached to the stinger left by the bee will continue to pump venom into you as time goes on. So you want to really get rid of that as quickly as possible. You also want to clean the sting with soap and water or an antiseptic. You want to use ice packs to remove and, I'm sorry, reduce uh, pain and swelling. You want to use maybe some topical hydrocortisone cream or an antihistamine to reduce swelling. Calamine lotion will help or an antihistamine to relieve itching. And if there's a sign of infection, as I, I talked about before, you want to definitely take an antibiotic like amoxicillin, cephalexin, clindamycin, all these will work and cover any obviously draining wounds with a dressing. Of course, severe allergic reactions should be treated with uh, epinephrine auto-injectors, things like the EpiPen. These are commonly used, very simple, and they are very effective to counteract anaphylactic shock. So, family medic, you have to make sure that you know that there's more to worry about in the great outdoors than the lions and tigers and bears that you heard about in the Wizard of Oz. You have to watch out for tiny, but not defenseless, stinging insects. Stay away from their homes. They're less likely to bug you. And now, a word from our sponsor. Hello, citizen. Are you feeling low? Don't have it like you used to? Has your get-up-and-go got up and went? Well, consider the wholesome goodness of Prevalaxian Balance, a healthy mix of fruits, vegetables, sleep aids, and Alzheimer drugs in one tiny capsule. Made from probiotic macronutrients, which are processed down to a fine ash, Prevalaxian Balance will give you the pep you need to run that marathon and get a good night's sleep 10 minutes later. Mix with water and you can use it to seal that hole in your canoe. Prevalaxian Balance, your natural road to good health, a better night's sleep, and a higher IQ. Available wherever cure-alls are sold. Hey, Nurse Amy here. We're going to discuss a few more of the ways you can process some herbal medicines. And the book that I love to use and the one that I'm getting this information out is specifically from Natural Health. It's the Encyclopedia of Herbal Medicine. And there's a long subtitle, The Definitive Reference to 550 Herbs and Remedies for Common Ailments. And I really love this book. It actually is full of hundreds and hundreds of color pictures showing you exactly the steps to make herbal remedies, what the flowers and the leaves and the stems of the particular plants look like, great descriptions where to find them, how to harvest them, and um, some of the ways you can process them. But the section that I'm reading specifically is just generally about herbal medicine and, and different ways to process them. And today we're going to talk about um, cold, 
cold infused oils to begin with. Um, it's interesting, cold infused oils are, are not something that you're going to want to try to process when somebody is sick. And we've discussed this with other um, different ways to process herbs. Is some of these you can make sort of instantly, like a tea, you know, decoction and an infusion. And some of them take a lot longer, like tinctures and infused oils. And cold infused oil is no different. It's a slow process and it basically involves leaving a jar packed with herbs and oil to stand for several weeks. So again, these are something, a type of processing that you need to do in advance. So if you have some herbs that you want to process this way, go ahead and get started. At least understand that it's going to take a long time. Sunlight encourages the plant to re release its active constituents into the oil. So that's basically the process. It's the most suitable method of oil infusion for fresh plant material, especially the more delicate parts of plants such as like St. John's wort and calendula. Um, those are some of the more commonly cold infused oils. St. John's wort is anti-inflammatory and analgesic and it may be applied topically. There are some uh, capsules, there are some herbal remedies that do include um, a powder of St. John's wort. Uh, those are very specific amounts and this is really just talking about making an oil that you can infuse, or excuse me, that you can apply topically. Olive oil is one of the most commonly used oils. It's suitable for cold infusion since it rarely turns rancid. Now just like some of the other ways we've talked about processing, you need to look for signs that your herbal remedy has gone bad. If you see mold, if just things don't look right, you need to throw that out. You don't want to keep something that's gone bad. And I'm sure there are times that cold infusion just doesn't work. It goes rancid, so keep an eye on it. And the intensity of the sunlight and the length of time that the herb is infused affects the concentration. So if you want a double concentration, infuse it for the few weeks and then take that oil and add fresh supply of herbs to it and you'll get a double infusion. It actually is going to make it more concentrated. <clears throat> Excuse me. So you're actually doing a second infusion. So there's three steps, very simple. One, place the herb in a clear glass jar. Pour the oil in until it completely covers the herb. Close the jar and shake well. Place the jar in a sunny spot, such as a windowsill, and leave for two to six weeks. So that's a little more specific, two to six weeks. Then you're going to pour the oil and the herb mixture into a muslin cloth secured to the rim of a jug or a bowl with a string, or you could use a wine press, and allow the oil to filter through the bag. So what you're ending up is it's extracting and or preventing all of the herbal material, the plant material, from getting into your final oil. So you just have a pure oil. At the end of that, squeeze out the remaining oil from the bag, then pour the infused oil into dark glass bottles, label them with the herbal material. I would also put how long you let them sit, because the next time if you want to make that same type of batch, like it really worked well, 
it's it's sort of your recipe. So if you infused it for three weeks, write three weeks and then write the date that you took the herbal material out so you know when it got put into the dark glass bottles. Also, if you double infused, make sure you write that down too and how long it was in for the second time and when that came out. Sorry for the scratchy voice. Uh, we moved a plant and apparently it had a lot of dust on it and I feel like it got in my lungs so I'm kind of coughing up some plant dust. Anyway, let's talk about ointments and I think since my voice isn't holding out too well that we'll stop there. Ointments contain oils or fats heated with herbs and unlike creams contain no water. As a result, ointments form a separate layer on the surface of the skin. They protect against injury or inflammation of damaged skin and carry active medicinal constituents such as essential oils to the affected area. Ointments are useful in conditions such as hemorrhoids or where protection is needed from moisture such as in chapped lips and diaper rash. Ointments can be made with dozens of bases. They vary in consistency depending on the constituents and the proportions used. The simplest way is to make a soft all-purpose ointment and to do that use petroleum jelly or soft paraffin wax. Petroleum jelly is impermeable to water and provides a protective barrier for the skin. Single herbs or mixtures of, herb, of herbs may be used as required provided that they are finely cut and essential oil can be stirred into the ointment just before straining. Different consistencies are first of all a solid and relatively grease-free ointment which will spread easily and is useful for preparations such as the lip balms. This may be made by using alternatives to mineral oils also. Melt 140 grams of coconut oil with 120 grams of beeswax and 100 grams of the powdered herb for 90 minutes in a glass bowl that is set in a pan of water or use a double broiler which is essentially what you're doing. Then strain and pour into jars. A less solid ointment for conditions such as skin rashes may be used by combining olive oil and beeswax. Melt 60 grams of beeswax with two cups or 500 milliliters of olive oil and 120 grams of dried or 300 grams of fresh herbs in a glass bowl. Cover and place in a warm oven for three hours, then remove, strain, and pour into jars. This ointment can also be made by combining two cups or 500 milliliters of hot infused oil which we talked about how to make in the last show and mix that with 60 grams of melted beeswax. So exactly what you're going to do is you're going to melt if you're going to use petroleum jelly or wax in a glass bowl set in a pan of boiling water or the double broiler add the finely cut herbs and simmer for 15 minutes stirring continuously. Pour the herbal mixture into a muslin cloth like we just talked about with the cold infused oil with the side secured with a string and allow the liquid to filter through. Wearing rubber gloves, squeeze as much of the hot herbal mixture as possible from the muslin bag, go ahead and pick it up, into the jug and then quickly pour the molten ointment into jars before it sets in the jug. So you want to work quickly. 
Place the lid on each jar without, without securing firmly. When it's cool, then you want to tighten the lids and go ahead and label. And what do you put on that label? Of course, what did you use? What was your recipe? What, what oils did you use? Did you use petroleum jelly? What herb did you use? Um, what date did you, did you make it? So you definitely want to have that. <clears throat> Standard quantity for making this is 60 grams of dried or 150 grams of fresh herbs to 500 grams of petroleum jelly or soft paraffin wax. Um, application use, you can apply it three times a day and make sure that you store it in the sterilized glass jars with lids for up to three months. Uh, thank you guys for listening. I'm sorry I can't uh, do any more, but I think I need some hot tea. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm going to need to clear this out somehow. Anyway, thanks for listening. Have a beautiful day, and we really appreciate you guys being here. Hey, summer's when people head out to the shore, and millions, millions of people are going to have an awesome day out on the beach. On occasion, however, a person's going to run afoul of a sea creature during their time in the water. I mean, it's their home after all, and some can get pretty aggressive when disturbed or looking for a meal. I mean, it's their world, you're just swimming in it. When you think most about encounters with dangerous sea creatures, I guess you're probably thinking about sharks. It's Shark Week, actually, right now, so this is something that is in the news. It's true that running afoul of a shark when you get in the water is a very rare occurrence. Recently, however, there have been more shark sightings and even attacks, including a couple recently uh, not too far away from where we are right here. It's not absolutely certain why, but some blame warmer waters due to climate change, other increase in prey animals near well-populated coastal communities like Cape Cod and lots of seals there now and attracting maybe juvenile great white sharks. Speaking of well-populated, the Earth is pretty well-populated with humans. Back in 1950, the global population was 2.5 billion people. Today, it's over 8 billion. So, crunch the numbers according to the rate of unprovoked shark attacks per million people, and things have stayed pretty flat. There have been, I think, 60 or so in 2023, depending on what you consider provoked or unprovoked to be. All oceans have sharks. Uh, there are about 25 or so species out of the hundreds that have attacked humans. The types that have been documented to attack humans that are in the record are great white sharks, tiger sharks, bull sharks, blue sharks, oceanic white-tip sharks, hammerheads, makos, lemon sharks, reef sharks, black-tip sharks, sand tigers, a bunch of them. There are also gray nurse sharks that have been known to attack humans, but it's actually not fair to call them aggressive because they're not really aggressive. They usually bite as a result of being disturbed by a swimmer or a diver or somebody stepping on them, that kind of thing. Every sailor's nightmare is to be thrown overboard in shark-infested waters, right? Sharks are perfectly engineered to live and hunt in the sea, and humans are, well, when they're in there, they're like a fish out of water. If you've ever seen a shark bite, you know that it's very important to prevent it. So you certainly want to prevent them rather than treat them. You definitely want to avoid them. What do you want to do? You want to avoid areas where sharks regularly patrol, such as rapid changes in depth from shallow to deep water, deep channels, and spaces between sandbars. A shark sometimes spends time in the area where rivers meet the sea, where silt makes it more difficult to see the sharks. There are just a number of areas where you don't want to be swimming around because sharks can be nearby. You also want to just stay out of the water in certain situations. You want to stay out of the water, especially if you have a bleeding wound or even if you're menstruating. Sharks have a very keen sense of smell. They have nostrils, not for breathing, but for smelling. 
and they're attracted to even small amounts. Their sense of smell is so sensitive they can detect one part per million of blood in seawater. That's pretty amazing. Although there's some controversy regarding this, other substances that might possibly attract sharks are urine and feces. Uh, that's not as well documented. Things you also want to do is you want to avoid carrying or wearing shiny objects that like, uh, let's say, a, a necklace or a anklet, things like that. These things can be mistaken by sharks for fish scales. And swimmers should also avoid wearing high contrast clothing. Sharks can distinguish light colors from dark and seem to be attracted to certain colors like yellow, orange, white, and silver. Clothing and equipment should be in dull colors. Now, if you are spear fishing, you want to remove anything speared. You got to get that out of the water as soon as possible. A fish that's speared bleeds and struggles, both of which attract sharks. Uh, you want to avoid splashing the water surface while you're swimming. So you want to swim smoothly in the water. Thrashing around may make you appear like a fish or a seal in trouble and gain a shark's unwanted attention. Sharks actively hunt in certain times of the day. Usually that's night, dusk, or dawn. So you want to stay out of the water at that time as well. You're in a beach area, you want to swim where there are the most people. You swim in groups if you possibly can. Uh, now, don't swim anywhere, by the way, near fishing boats. They regularly chum the water with fish guts and blood to attract fish, which then attracts sharks. I remember catching a grouper once in the Bahamas, and when I pulled it up, I heard, felt a big tug, and sure enough, the only thing that was left was the head of the fish. A shark had taken the rest of it. Let's say that you're in the water, and there are sharks in the general area. Sharks can actually injure you without biting you. Even though that's the only way they really tell much about you, they also can tell by bumping into you. And shark skin is as abrasive as sandpaper. They often bump potential prey to investigate before deciding to attack. And this blood that occurs from the skin that's abraded makes them more aggressive or can make them more aggressive as a result. As such, you should always make sure to keep your clothing on if you're thrown overboard and that includes your shoes. Definitely want to have some protection in case the shark bumps into you and causes you to bleed. You want to stay big or get small. This is where it gets sort of complicated. If a shark is clearly in attack mode, you're going to need to make yourself as big as possible in the water. The bigger you are, the more respect you might get. But if the shark seems to be simply passing by, some say to roll up into a ball and try to be less noticeable. If a shark sees you as a competitor for its food source, that can be another reason that it attacks you. It's not a good idea to let a shark out of your sight. That's one thing that's very important. Sharks like to ambush from below or behind, so make every effort to know its location at all times. You want to posture your body so it knows that you see it and that you're not afraid of it, even though you probably are. Then you want to slowly back up towards maybe an exit to a boat if there's one, or to the shore if you're close to the beach, or a coral head that you might be able to use as a wall that the shark can't get to you from behind. If a shark does approach you, you want to slap the water with cupped hands, shout underwater. Otherwise, you want to try to kick or punch it, especially in sensitive areas like the snout, eyes, or gills. Well, these strategies might deter a shark that's just curious. If you have a snorkel or an underwater camera, you want to use it to poke an oncoming shark instead of your hands. So you certainly punch a shark in the snout where you're getting awfully close to its mouth, right? If you're going to get it in the eyes, you want to use your thumbs. Try to make the eye come out the other side if you possibly can. And the gills are very sensitive. You want to just grab the gills and you want to just try to pull them apart. And those are things that might have some benefit. Now, one thing that doesn't have a benefit is to play dead. This does not discourage them. They're not black bears. Likewise, swimming as fast as you can will only make you appear like a thrashing fish. I don't care how good a swimmer you are, you're not going to outswim a shark.
So make slow, smooth strokes and keep the shark in view if at all possible. In some cases, you may receive that investigatory bump from a shark, which may then just swim away. Other times, the shark is going to just bite. If the shark realizes you're not prey material, it will likely not pursue the attack. In some cases, however, it's going to attack again and again. For this reason, some authorities distinguish between bite incidents and attacks. Even in deliberate attacks, sharks often bite once and then retreat to wait for the victim to die or weaken with shock and blood loss. This is protective to the shark, maybe, to avoid injury from a desperate victim. For humans, however, it may allow a tiny bit of time to possibly save a life. If a person's been bitten, you have to remember to try to get that victim out of the water immediately. Even a solitary bite can cause bleeding that's often life-threatening. Your priority is to stop the hemorrhage. Don't try to clean the wound first. You want to expose the wound if needed, but time's running out. If it's obvious where the bleeding is, don't even wait to cut away clothing. Lay the victim down. Apply firm direct pressure using overlapped hands with your full body weight. If you have dressings, use them between your hands and the wound as a barrier. If you have a tourniquet in your medical kit or you have or you can improvise one, well, this should be the first course of action in any serious bleed. Place it high and tight on the extremity. Then you want to cover the patient because they're going to be in shock and lose body heat quickly. If the bleeding is from an extremity, you want to elevate it above the level of the heart if you can. Once the bleeding is under control, then you apply a compression bandage in normal times, of course. You will have already called emergency services. Listen, sharks are very important for the marine ecology, and indeed you are much more likely to drown from some mishap than be bitten by a shark. And your chances of surviving are actually about 89%. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alden, I'm Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. 